In a moment, I'll invite Bruce uh, to come forward. Bruce and Emma Reed are with us. It's so good to have you. I hope you'll get a chance to greet them. Um, I don't know Bruce well, but I, I first met Bruce's father about 16 years ago. Uh, I met him, and six weeks later, I was on a plane with him to North Africa. It was, it was quite uh, an experience, and, and uh, Ben and I have been uh, dear friends ever since. It's a joy to, to walk with him. And so I've heard about Bruce uh, over the years. Bruce studied at, at Peace River Bible Institute up north. He's been on staff at another church uh, earlier as an intern, I think, for about a year and a half or so. And so it's a real uh, joy for me to invite him to come forward and share from God's word with us. So please come, Bruce. Well, good morning, everyone. Everyone can hear me properly? Good, good. Let's raise this up a bit. So yeah, good morning to all of you here and those of you joining online as well. Um, it's good to be here today on this, the, the first Sunday of 2022. Uh, a little bit of who I am. As Dennis said, my name is Bruce Reed. Um, and I think the last time I visited this church uh, was probably at least 15 years ago. Uh, my father, Ben, who Dennis mentioned, uh, has spoken here several times before as a missionary and guest preacher. And I believe I visited along with him as a tag-along, probably between 10 and 12 years old. And that's all just to say that if you were part of the, this church 15 or more years ago, and you don't remember me, that's totally normal. <laughs> um, these days, I'm a recent Bible college grad, and I've served briefly as an interim pastor in Edmonton area, alongside of my wife, Emma, who is visiting with me today. As we get started here, may I say that I hope that all of us are recovering nicely from our holiday dinners, uh, and more importantly, that we're all able to celebrate and to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ this Christmas, ideally with much joy in the presence of family and friends. I'm well aware that uh, as we turn the calendar onto a new year, it's often a time of reflection and a celebration for many of us. Commonly, we look back over the year we have just made it through, and we consider both the joys and the sorrows uh, the victories and the defeats, the events that took place, whether they were humorous or just really hard, and depending on what kind of year it's been. If you're like me, this past year in particular has been a lot to digest. At this time of year, though, we also often look ahead to the new, a new year with new opportunities, with potentially new friends, with new challenges, perhaps some New Year's resolutions for some of you. We've completed something, and now we are looking forward to the next step. And this is exactly the position that the people of Israel found themselves in when Joshua addressed them for the final time. Uh, Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 to 28, which will be our sermon text for today. I'll read the passage in its entirety shortly here. Uh, but I must warn you that it covers, though it only covers half of Joshua's original speech, our passage for today is certainly not lacking in vigor. Joshua's speech to the people 
is primarily a call for action, specifically and primarily choice. It's all about the choice between God and fake gods, or in other words, idols. And I believe it's a message that uh, we as God's people in any age need to hear. So, with that being said, in your introduction, let's pray, and then we can dive right into the passage. Heavenly Father, uh, we come here today uh, because of you, because of what you have done in our lives, and also in expectation of what you will continue to do in our lives. Uh, Lord, for this church, I thank you for it. I thank you for the faithful saints here. And I pray that you would bless them, and I pray that you would prepare them for this new year and all that you have in store. God, as we open your word and reflect upon it and consider it, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would shape our hearts and draw our, uh, all of us towards you a little bit more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, on to our passage. So, uh, I'll read for us. It is Joshua 24, verses 14 to 28, if you'd like to follow along. This is Joshua speaking to the people. Now, therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went, among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And he put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. 
And so Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Well, there's a lot here to think about and to digest. As a bit of a roadmap for us today, I'll be focusing on three main points of Joshua's final exhortation to the people of Israel. And then we'll be considering what they would have meant in the context of that day with those people, and then also moving to consider uh, what those very same three points would mean when they're applied to us today. Uh, With that being said, a little bit more background will be helpful for us in seeking to understand uh, their context, the people of Israel's context. First, the where. Uh, This speech is delivered by Joshua to the people of Israel at Shechem, a place near the center of the fledgling nation, as very near where Joshua had performed another covenant renewal ceremony in the middle of the conquest. Then, uh, the who. The main speaker, of course, is Joshua, uh, the famous leader of the people of Israel during the conquest of Canaan. And he, he's the guy who likely learned both leadership and faithful devotion to the Lord directly from Moses himself. And in this passage today, he's also speaking to the representatives, likely, of all of the tribes of Israel. He's not speaking to all of the people at once. That would be a lot of people. Uh, but he is speaking to all the important uh, folks, the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of the land. Imagine maybe something similar to a, a, nas- a serious national leadership conference today uh, where everyone comes together and, and you hear different speakers speak. And as to the when, the people have just about completed their entrance into and possession of the promised land. The main Canaanite enemies have been defeated and the countryside has been settled. The unity of the tribes with one another and to God has been tested through various events, and you can read all about them in the book of Joshua. But on the whole, they have stayed together. They have trusted in God to provide the victory, and they have found success. This would be the time immediately before that described in the book of Judges. So in short, the people as a whole have completed something significant, and they're on the edge of something new, a new time, a new era of relative peace and of building and growing. They're no longer to be a nomadic people, but now to have a real home of their own, a place to belong. As I mentioned previously, Joshua is now near the end of his leadership of Israel, on the brink of retirement, we might say. And it seems that he felt the need to gather the people together one last time to speak to them, and to renew their commitment to their covenant with God. The beginning of the chapter tells us that Joshua assembled the people at Shechem, though when he starts speaking, he begins by giving them actually a message straight from God, more like a prophet. Uh, So he's, he's speaking, but it's as if God is speaking through him. Uh, This extended prophetic oracle from God through Joshua goes from verses 2 to 13 of this chapter, and essentially is a summary of the salvation history of Israel from God's perspective. It covers everything from bringing Abraham out from idolatry beyond the river, to rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt, 
to defeating their enemies for them, both in the wilderness and as part of their invasion of the land of Canaan. All in all, it's a staggering list of the acts and the grace of God to his people. And it's summed up nicely by the last sentence in this part of the address, which is the only one that I'll read, um, just as a summary. So verse 13, this is from God's perspective. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. What a vivid picture of just God's grace, his undeserved blessing of his people. And it is right at this point that we get to the beginning of our text for today. So verse 14, and here Joshua um, returns to speaking from his own perspective. Uh, So listen again to what he says from verses 14 to 15. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your forefathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's hard to read the book of Joshua, and even just the speech, without coming away with a real respect for Joshua as a leader and as a man of God. His words to the people are simple and direct, forceful. He recognizes that the nation and everyone in it is at a crossroads. Behind them are successes and miraculous victories, but also behind the nation of Israel is a long history of idolatry, both to gods that they might remember from their ancestral days and the gods of whichever people happen to be around them. Joshua calls them now to consider the truth of what the one true God has done for them and to clearly choose to respond with obedience. This is the first point of Joshua's exhortation to the people. You can simplify this down to to just this. Remember God and choose him. And Joshua also leads by example. And he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's the kind of leader who does not lead others to places that he's not willing to go himself. Notice that it is service to God that is specifically in view here as well. Joshua does not really care for mere verbal recognition of God. He calls the people to full-on devotion to service, meaning action. And it's important that the people of Israel hear this because as, we, as I just mentioned, they had a history of idolatry. Through the wilderness wanderings, they had a history of doubting God, of complaining, and uh, it would go off and on through all this time. So Joshua knew that they needed to remember the one true God and what he had done for them, all of the amazing things that he had done, and that they needed to choose again that day to serve their God with total commitment. And this is pretty much the same for us here on the verge of 2022. Both as individual believers and especially collectively as God's people, as churches, 
We are a part of the people of God. And the history of who we are and how God has been at work in us is rich. I don't pretend to know the exact history of what you as Sunrise Community Church specifically have gone through and how God has worked in and through you over the years. But I do know that he has been working. Sometimes some of you might struggle to see exactly what God is up to in your life or in the life of any given church community. I certainly often do myself. But if we are Christians at all, God has certainly done amazing things in our lives already. Think even back to your own salvation. God worked powerfully in your life and changed its entire direction by leading you uh, to repentance and to faith that wasn't there before. And because any Christ-confessing church is a community of exactly such saved sinners and forgiven sinners, I'm pretty sure uh, those who have been around this church in particular for long enough will be able to remember many things, many ways that God has worked in people's lives and the events that have happened in brothers' and sisters' lives, whether it's difficult things that God has led them through, or ways that God has answered prayer, or just changing people's lives from a place of, of lowness and brokenness to healing and to wholeness. Yet, no matter how many good things God has already done for us and in us, and that we have done in serving God, it is an important truth to grasp that this guarantees nothing about our immediate future. Just because you or I have done well, or even just all right recently, in trusting and following God does not mean that you or I will tomorrow. Just because a church has done well in trusting and following God for one season does not mean that it will continue to do so tomorrow or even next year. And this is a general truth. It applies to all people in all places and all times. Past faithfulness in anything does not necessarily guarantee continued future faithfulness. Many of you likely know this already from your own life. I certainly do from mine. And everything we know about human nature from history, current events, personal experience confirms this. It is hard, sometimes very hard, to maintain long, steadfast faithfulness in the same direction. And that is why today, right now, at the start of 2022, all of us as Christians must again choose to be the people of God. We can't rest on what has happened before. We must choose for today to be his people, to be dedicated to the good news of Jesus Christ, to be driven to see disciples made and maturity reached by many, ultimately to see God glorified in us and in our world. When I was younger, I had a teacher at Bible college tell us over and over again in a class on Christian life that the most important question that we can regularly ask ourselves is simply this. Do I love God today? Here's what I think he meant. At almost every moment of every day, we are making choices. 
And if at the moment of every choice, we were most motivated by a great love for our God and all that he stands for and that he loves, if we had that, our lives would be completely different, completely better in so many ways. And the inverse is also true. If at any particular moment, our love for God is small, if we have lately been forgetful of what God has done for us in Christ, if our hearts and minds are captivated much more by lesser things, we will then take actions and make choices accordingly. We will sin in word or deed. We will not do what we should do. We will do instead what is wrong, what is twisted, what is selfish. So yes, we as individuals and as individual believers need to remember what God has done and then to choose today, once again, even if it's for the thousandth time, to serve our God and no one or nothing else. Simple suggestion for application. As you spend time with family or other believers at the start of this new year, try to take time to remember the good things that God has done in this past year. I know it's been a hard and a strange year for many of us, but God has still been good. And so let's try to remember that. Let's try to remember what he has done and then to choose to continue to seek and follow him. Remember and choose. But, and this is an important but, what about when we don't? What about when we don't remember God? What about when we find it really hard to remember what God has done and to choose him? Maybe we find our minds constantly distracted by mundane things. Maybe we are so, so stuck in our bad habits that it makes it hard to break cycles of destructive choices. Maybe that's where you are at right now. I know myself that I have been there far too many times, even in this last year. So what does the Word of God have for us in that case? One of the things that I've come to appreciate about the Bible is that the truth of human weakness and of sin is never sugar-coated. The stark reality of the sin that I see in my life, as well as in the life of others around me, is reflected everywhere in Scripture. And the book of Joshua is no exception. As we keep reading this text, we see that from verses 16 to 18, you know, people seem quite on board with what Joshua is saying. They say, uh, yes, of course we will serve the Lord. We're going to do it. We are going to commit and Joshua drops the hammer on them, saying essentially, well, you can't. You cannot. You are not able to. Wow. Just imagine with me how this would go over today with any of our political leaders in Canada. No brutal honesty from our politicians would be a refreshing change some of the time, for sure. I have the feeling that it would not go over well on the whole. 
the end of the day, most people generally do not like being told hard things. Yet, yet listen to what Joshua says. I'll read it again from verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. What in the world is Joshua trying to do here, do you think? In context, he's clearly trying to encourage the people in the right direction. So he wouldn't be intentionally trying to discourage them, right? But why is he saying it this way? Why is he saying these things in particular? Is he just trying to communicate as strong a warning as he possibly can? Was he just overwhelmed with a feeling of brutal pessimism in that moment? Was he prophesying? What was running through his head? Though it's impossible to know for sure, of course, without asking Joshua ourselves, after considering this question and reading various commentators, I would say that while Joshua, in the context of this whole speech, may have originally meant this as a rhetorical way of urging them very strongly to follow God, uh, it's also hard to deny that there must have been something prophetic in it as well, perhaps something that Joshua didn't intend. And the reason why, sadly, Joshua pretty much got it right. Judges tells us that just one generation later, so the children of all the people that, are, that Joshua is speaking to right there, uh, Judges says, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They provoked the Lord to anger. It's Judges chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. Just one generation later, and Joshua's strong warning was proved true. Well, let's begin to look beyond Israel. Let's think about us. Can you, can I, serve the Lord any better? If that seems like a silly question to you, think about the truths in Joshua's statement here. As he said in verse 19, God is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Today, God is still a holy God. He is still a jealous God. As the Bible says elsewhere, He dwells in unapproachable light and is a consuming fire. That has not changed. And He is jealous. As much as it's hard for us to understand that because of the way we normally use that word, but He is jealous. He is jealous for absolute righteousness for the infinite glory that is due his name alone. The Lord God will be seen as perfect and true and just and Lord of all. And that is the God that scripture reveals. And this, 
My dear brothers and sisters, this is why we need Jesus so much. Because we can't measure up to that. We can't do it. We can't love and serve God like that in the way that he deserves. Because he deserves absolute perfection. And instead, in our hearts, we have self-centered corruption. Without Christ, without the very Spirit of God living right within us, we will always forsake him and serve ourselves or other lowercase gods of this world. We need him to live the life that we cannot. We need his rightness, his righteousness to be given to us. We need forgiveness through his name. We need the new covenant in his blood. We see this dynamic clearly expressed in the words of the Apostle Paul, as he says in Romans 7, 21 to 25. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. As Paul goes on to further explain in chapter 8 of Romans, Jesus Christ is the answer in at least two different ways. First of all, simply his blood covers us. His sacrifice means that we can be completely and totally forgiven if we trust in him. And secondly, because of being made right through the blood of Jesus, we have access to the very same Spirit of God right within us. We who have come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord have the option to no longer be controlled by our old self, by our old sinful nature, but instead to let the Spirit live and reign in us. This is the way to freedom from sin. This is the way to faithfulness that lasts and grows and in the end will not be defeated. So let's return to Joshua's words again. And he says in verse 19 to the people of Israel, you are not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. Because of the gospel, though, because of Jesus, we know a little more. We do know that on our own, we cannot properly serve the Lord. He's too holy for us, too pure for us, too jealous for our unfaithfulness. We know that we are unable, but we know that Christ is able. Jesus Christ lived a life that did serve God completely. Completely. He lived a life that satisfied God's holiness, that never turned away, that never strayed from total faithfulness. And then he offered that life up for us so that God could, in full justice and holiness, forgive us, forgive our rebellion and our sin. 
so that we in turn could be free to live according to the Spirit and not the flesh. As Paul said first, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Of course, there's still, there still is a strong and a serious warning for us in this today. And that's simply because we know that not everyone is in Christ. Not everyone does acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. Not everyone has the Holy Spirit leading them to life and peace. For those people, and possibly for some of you listening today, you need to know that without the life of Jesus Christ on your behalf, you do have no hope. You need to know that you cannot please God on your own. You need to know that your own life and goodness is not enough. Jesus Christ is your only hope, whether you currently acknowledge that or not. I pray that all of us who hear this message today will be convicted of that truth deep down in the bottom of our hearts. What if, though, we, or most of us at least, already know this? What if you or I truly say, along with the people of the Israel in this passage, no, we will serve the Lord. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord and to serve other gods. Well, first of all, let, let us rejoice because that kind of a response, that kind of desire when it comes from our hearts is a joyful gift from God in the first place. And secondly, we'll go on and we'll read how Joshua responds to the people and what he tells them to do. This is verse 22. And Joshua says to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. Joshua starts by once again reminding them of the cost of their decision by telling them that they are witnesses against themselves. So to go back on their word would be put them in a worse position than they were in previously. And then he simply tells them to follow through. Just do it, basically. If the Israelites are willing to say along with Joshua that, yes, we will serve the Lord, then he tells them that means that they must, A, throw away the foreign gods that are among them, and B, Incline their hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Joshua has been challenging the people to remember God and to choose him. Then he has challenged them that they couldn't do it. And now after the objection of the people, he tells them, all right, go ahead, prove me wrong. Some scholars see the mention of idols here as evidence that even at that point in their history, the Israelites must still have had physical idols in their possession, perhaps leftovers, mementos of previous years in Egypt, 
and among other nations. Whatever the case might have been, the big picture meaning of this first point is clear. There must not even be a hint of idolatry amongst God's own people. There's not room for even lightly holding on to idols amongst the people whom God has made holy and set apart for his glory. And the second part of the command is that they are to incline their hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Even in the Old Testament, God always wanted the heart of his people more than just their obedience alone, and especially more than just their lip service alone. It's important for us to keep in mind here that the Hebrew conception of what is meant by heart is far more than what we usually mean by the same word. Yes, it indicates our feelings about something, but in the Hebrew concept, it's also the seat of our will and our mind and everything else that we are. And so this is what God wanted from his people, to have their mind and everything else, to have their hearts, to have all of them. And for there to be no counterfeit gods among them that would corrupt and dilute the fellowship that he could have with them as Lord. If you study the Old Testament law carefully, you can see that actually everything in it, every seemingly insignificant little detail in the law was actually to help the people remember uh, that he was their God, that they were set apart and help them to remember that it was his grace uh, that was keeping them as holy, protecting them from idols and idolatry. All, all the law was, was wrapped up in trying to, to accomplish those things, keeping them as separate, keeping them safe from lies, from foreign gods, helping them to remember that God had chosen them, that God loved them, that God plan to do them good. Sadly, Israel largely failed at keeping that law. So, what relevance does this talk of idolatry have for us? Though the law and the covenants have changed in Jesus, as we've discussed, our human hearts unfortunately have much in common with the problems of the Israelites of old. Though we've identified with Christ and decided to serve him with our lives, yet there are many things in our hearts and our lives that steal away our energy and affection from our Lord. There are many things in our lives that sometimes in the, in the moment we value more than God. When it comes down to it, instead of loving honoring, seeking God, we care more about this television show that we just really want to watch. Or about being justified in front of these people and looking good in front of them. Or whatever it is. And these types of things that we value more than God in our hearts, these are idols just as much as the physical statues, and figurines that tripped up the ancient Israelites. 
Often these things are remnants from our lives before becoming Christians. Our old patterns of seeking worth and significance and control apart from God. Remember, too, that no one starts out life as a Christian. Every child born even in a Christian home starts out needing Jesus, needing a new heart just as much as any adult. And furthermore, we all learn while growing up all kinds of different ways and means of operating and manipulating selfishly. If you don't believe me, just watch a medium to large size group of young kids opening gifts on Christmas morning. As cute as they all are, all it takes is one of them to get something that some of the others wanted instead, and all of a sudden temper tantrums, theft, and even tears are not far away. To make matters worse for us, once we do become Christians, the world, the flesh, the devil, all seek to trap us into new ways of sinning in our hearts and in our minds, convincing us of things that aren't true and aren't good or leading us to worse things down the road. To give you an idea of some of the kind of, kinds of things that I'm talking about, I have a couple of examples of different kinds of idolatry that pastor and author Tim Keller has written about and identify. First, approval idolatry. When life only has meaning, or I only have worth, if I am loved and respected by this or that person, whoever it is. Family idolatry. When life only has meaning, or I only have worth, if my children or my parents are happy, and happy with me. Or there's control idolatry. When life only has meaning or I only have worth, if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of whatever it is. Or related work idolatry, where I only have worth if I am highly productive and I can get a lot done. All of these examples and there's, there's way more than just those. It's just a, a small peek into it. Others include safety, comfort, entertainment. The list could go on and on. And they're all actually pretty common, even amongst Christians. And they can still be deadly. Sometimes we... We only look at the blatant, the obvious sins that a person might commit as being the really bad things to, be, to do or be caught doing. We think of things like drug addiction, family-wrecking affairs, physical, emotional abuse of others. The reality is that the things that I've mentioned, just mentioned are usually only symptoms, terrible symptoms to be sure that have terrible consequences, but they are symptoms. They are committed by people who in their hearts love something or multiple somethings much more than God. Perhaps it's an overpowering desire for approval from peers that easily leads to drug addiction as a young adult. Maybe it's making an idol of your family that leads towards self-hatred and depression when you feel like you are constantly letting them down. 
And being mastered by the desire to be in control of things in your life can cause you to very easily disregard, manipulate, and even abuse other people around you when they don't want to go and do things your way. Any one thing that completely controls our hearts can lead to any and all kinds of other evil because the only one who properly belongs at the center of our hearts is God alone. And the difficult thing about idolatry is that while it can be so powerful in taking us away from God and leading us further into sin, it is also sometimes very subtle, very hard to detect, especially in oneself. It usually has very deep roots. It can be hard to recognize and to deal with. Much prayer, much support from other believers, much meditation on the truth, and many, many daily choices are often required for us to truly cast away hidden idols in our life. It's a difficult and demanding process. In fact, it's so difficult and comprehensive that some of you might even be thinking right now, isn't all this a bit too extreme? Isn't this just getting people to be overly sensitive and self-analyzing and introspective? If this was true, almost everything we do could potentially be idolatry. Isn't that a bit much? Yes, it's true that everything can potentially be idolatry. But no, it's not too much to care about. Why? Because, to put it simply, Jesus is worthy of all of our praise. Not some of it. Nothing is too great or too difficult to be done for him, for his glory. He is the lamb who was slain and is worthy of everything that we have. We can't serve our Lord and Master well with divided nooks and crannies in our hearts. And I'm preaching this as much to myself right now as to all of you. Let's remember, too, that in the end, idolatry is really just attempting to get what God alone can provide from anything else that's not Him. It doesn't work. Ultimately, it's irrational. And it always leads to our captivity, to our addiction, to our suffering, just like the nation of Israel. How foolish it was for them to turn to carved images of wood and stone for their national security and their prosperity especially when they're only one generation removed from God's miraculous care and protection of them. And it's just as irrational for us today. To use a holiday-themed example, idolatry calls us to feast on candy and sugar and syrup alone, eating nothing else, and it promises then that we will be healthy and well. But it's a lie. It leaves us in the end with rotting teeth, sickness, and weakness. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis that helps us to address and look at it from a different angle. 
He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This highlights the blessed fact that to to turn from our idols and instead to actually turn our hearts towards God is not to diminish joy and to become hard-hearted legalists, but it is actually to embark on a quest for infinite joy in the presence of the Father, through the work of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is what we were made to do. That the stuff of our lives would not be a distraction from God, but that the good things that God gives us, like our families, our, our jobs, our possessions, whatever it is, that they wouldn't distract us, but instead we'd look at them and say, Thank you, God. Thank you for this. You have made this. You have given this to me. You are good. You alone are worthy to be praised and to be served. That's what we are made for. And so, how do we do that? How do we live that life of growing and increasing maturity, working on destroying idols, and into giving ourselves completely to God? course, that's a very big topic. Could have a whole sermon series on it. Um, Probably Pastor Dennis has talked about all sorts of different things. How do we serve God? How do we live the Christian life? Uh, But to not leave you completely hanging, just give a couple of quick, quick things. Of course, it's all through the New Testament instructions for us. How do we live this life of pursuing Christ? How do we live this life of throwing our idols down? Uh, The first thing we need to do when it comes to dealing with idols in our lives is to examine ourselves carefully, seeking to understand our own hearts and how they influence our actions. As Ephesians 5.15 says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Secondly, we need to understand what God actually wants from us and who he really is, understanding the will of the Lord, as the Bible puts it. This is impossible to do without studying Scripture and the truth of Scripture. Third, we must pray for, seek for, and feed the work of the Spirit in our lives. As Romans 8, 6 says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So we need His help. We need His leading and guiding. And last, but not least, we must submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ephesians 5, 21. Part of doing that means that we must listen to one another when we are seeking to encourage and to exhort one another towards maturity. 
God's designed us to need one another and each other's help and encouragement in living a God-glorifying life. We have done all of these things in our fight against idolatry, become aware of it within us, repented of it, known, believed God's truth about it, sought the Spirit, submitted ourselves to the encouragement and guidance of other believers, and all of what is left is to simply not stop doing these things. Every day is a new day, and every year is a new year in which God gives us choices and opportunities in the moment to serve Him as our God, not ourselves, not worthless idols. I should say that as I begin to conclude, I personally have a long way to go in this continual turning from idols, inclining my heart to the Lord. I would hazard a guess that most of us probably do. For me, I don't speak as someone who has defeated idolatry in my life, but I speak as someone who fights it. And this is the important thing for Christians everywhere, to never stop turning from the things that aren't God and to never stop turning to the one who is. We must keep pressing on, and not because we have to in order to earn our salvation, but because we already have been saved. We get the ability, the opportunity to press on to better things. To turn one last time to our text, we see from the very last part of it, verses 25-28, if you remember, that it can be helpful to have times of corporate remembrance and recommitment. We learned there that Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and he set up a stone as a witness and a reminder for the people of what they had agreed to do. By way of application, you know, this new year is often a time to look back and to renew our commitments through traditions like this. I would encourage all of us as individuals and as families to think about how we can continue or establish a new tradition, maybe, in our household of committing ourselves in the year ahead to the Lord. Whatever you decide upon, let it be something that helps you to remember God, to remember who he is and what he's done, and to choose him again. At the same time, let us also be aware that like the Israelites, we can't serve our holy God on our own. Instead, we need to know that because of the grace given to us through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, we have every assurance of being given both the help and the forgiveness that we need. And with that in mind, finally, let us never stop seeking to cast down our idols and inclining our hearts to God. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, through your power and your grace, you have called us to an amazing thing, to be your people, to be forgiven of all of our sin, to walk away from our old habits of life and to embrace you, to be changed by you. God, I pray for us, I pray for all the people here I pray for Sunrise Community Church, Lord, that in this new year, you would be working powerfully to change them, 
to remind them of who you are, to show them new things even of who you are. Lord, to help them to turn from idols, to help me, I pray that you would help me to turn from idols as well, because we need you more than anything else in our life. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.